Welcome back to the CHOP Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. My name is Bob Belfer and I'm your host. I first met Phyllis Rabinowitz over 15 years ago. She and her husband, Andrew, established Our Baby Foundation after their infant daughter, Rebecca, died in 2006. The foundation's mission is extremely pertinent to the field of pediatric emergency medicine. Our Baby Foundation is focused on saving babies' lives through improving pediatric emergency care, training, research, treatment, equipment, and education. Our Baby Foundation works with many children's hospitals to bring life-saving treatment and education to community hospitals where most children are seen. I was grateful to meet and hear Phyllis and Andrew Rabinowitz's story 15 years ago. The tragic death of their eight-day-old daughter, Rebecca, led to the creation of Our Baby Foundation in her honor. Today, Our Baby Foundation continues to save many babies' lives. Please go to Our Baby Foundation. That's R-B-A-B-Y-F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N dot org to learn more about this amazing organization. Welcome to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia Pediatric Emergency Medicine podcast. Today, you are in for a treat, listeners. We will be talking debriefing with Dr. Lauren Zins, who is an Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine and Pediatrics at Mount Sinai in New York City. And Lauren and I actually have a lot in common. We both did our pediatric ER fellowship at Children's National Medical Center. And for a few years, when Lauren was an attending at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, we overlap there at CHOP. Lauren has published and presented nationally on debriefing after medical resuscitation. So welcome, Lauren, to the CHOP PEM podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here today. Awesome. Good. So Lauren, just as a little icebreaker, uh, a few weeks ago, we had a podcast on PCARN head injuries, which I think both of us would agree is a landmark study in our field. What would you consider another landmark study in the field of pediatric emergency medicine? That's an excellent question, Bob. I would say definitely for me during the pandemic, the MISC literature has proven enormously helpful for me as I go into shifts and encounter patients frequently with prolonged fevers. And it truly is amazing, Lauren, a disease that never existed before. We sort of had to learn it from the get-go, and we had actually Dr. Josh Rocker and a few of my colleagues from CHOP talk about MISC on a previous podcast. So thank you for that plug for our podcast, Lauren. Before we get into the nitty gritty of debriefing, Lauren, how did you gravitate toward the field of debriefing? It's an excellent question, Bob. I would say I gravitated to it during my fellowship in pediatric emergency medicine, because what I found is after very emotionally charged, very stressful circumstances, it was very tough for me to then transition and start seeing new patients. And I always found that people were kind of muttering under their breaths, or they were kind of having side chats on our shifts together. And what I found was that if we took a moment, only five, 10 minutes or so, and discussed it more formally, 
talked about the case itself and then talked about what went well and what could be improved going forward, it provided closure for myself and um, my colleagues. That's awesome, Lauren. And it's funny, we both trained under Dr. Jim Chamberlain. He was our fellowship director. And again, I trained before debriefing was popular. And uh, after we had a resuscitation, uh, Jim just said, Bob, pick up the next chart. Uh, so now we're fortunate enough to have a short period of time where we may have a debriefing. Uh, so I looked at the definition. I sort of want to uh, share with our listeners the definition of debriefing, and we'll sort of go through it maybe phrase by phrase. So the definition I found online, Lauren, was debriefing is a facilitated conversation that explores and analyzes aspects of performance to inform future clinical practice. I guess one of the goals is to identify points of excellence as well as potential errors made during the case in the hopes of improving the quality of care during the next performance, in addition to providing emotional support. So let's start at the beginning, a facilitated conversation. Does the facilitator need to be an expert like yourself, or can it be the attending who ran, let's say, that resuscitation? So there's no hard, fast rules for facilitation. The facilitator could either be internally, so someone from the department, or it could be an external participant, as long as it's established ahead of time. Similarly, it could be a single provider, or it could be multiple providers if you want to facilitate with, say, for example, a nurse and a physician in collaboration. Okay. And what the the actual debriefing, what are the actual goals of the debriefing? You sort of commented a little bit in your journey toward the, the niche field of debriefing, but what are the goals of a debriefing session? So I would say the goals of debriefing are threefold. The first goal is to identify systems issues. Secondly, it's to enhance communication and teamwork. And the third goal is to improve patient care. And uh, I know many organizations, you may want to name a few that endorse debriefing. What are the outcomes? In other words, we're going through this process. Some of our listeners, they may be hearing about debriefing for the first time on this podcast. So what clinical outcomes do you see by providing a, a debriefing session? So there's been a number of published studies on the outcomes or benefits of debriefing. Actually, in a quantitative meta-analysis in 2013, they found that debriefing was associated with improved quality of resuscitation, not only improved technical CPR performance, but the rate of return of spontaneous circulation, survival to discharge, and neurologic outcomes. That was just one study. In another one, they found that debriefing improves the identification of errors, and it promotes team morale, as we've mentioned a couple times now and supports staff emotional well-being and satisfaction. I think all of those are excellent points. And again, a reason that if you're not implementing debriefing for cases, uh, maybe a good reason to start doing that. Specifically, Lauren, what type of cases? We're seeing tons of RSV, kids put on high-flow nasal cannula. Do we need to debrief for every one of those cases? Or what specific cases uh, would debriefing be a an asset for? Really good question, Bob. So I would say it's really important that you identify clear triggers ahead of time in your program. So certainly in the fledgling stages of creating a program, I would say initially I would recommend doing it around any resuscitation. So anytime that you have a collaborative effort where multiple providers are in the same room caring for a child, that would definitely be a trigger. Secondly, I would say respiratory events. So you don't want to make it so onerous that every respiratory event needs to be debriefed because then it becomes challenging to provide patient care. 
But if you want to provide a clear trigger that might identify, say, for example, intubations or a difficult airway, those might be better circumstances to prompt a debriefing. And then lastly, I would say psychosocial problems, such as the use of restraints or potentially a difficult family member. Or lastly, if there's a new diagnosis and it involved a lot of coordination of care. Great. You talked about resuscitations. Is it better or uh, to do a, a debriefing when you have a bad outcome as opposed to a good outcome or just resuscitation in general, Lauren? So I would say I would recommend doing the debriefings regardless of the outcome, whether it's positive or negative. And this is just to get people in the practice of doing debriefings more regularly. That's because most of our outcomes tend to be more favorable. And so we want people to get in the habit of discussing cases, even if it's something as simple as a femur fracture, because there's a lot of potential learning opportunities in these discussions. That's great. Lauren, I did a little bit of research I knew before having you come on, and I learned some of the terminology around debriefing. And one of them is hot debriefing versus cold debriefing. Share uh, what that means to our audience. Sure. So hot debriefing tends to happen immediately after the event with the providers that are involved in the resuscitation. And this is in contrast to cold debriefing, which tends to happen days to weeks later and often incorporates objective patient data, such as video recordings, to improve processes. Yeah, and again, the pros and cons of a uh, hot versus a cold, or does it depend on the specific case and maybe even how busy the ER is that day, Lauren? Yeah, so I would advocate that any significant event is probably going to lead to both a hot and a cold debriefing. But depending on the circumstances, they both have their benefits. So hot debriefing allows you to incorporate, as I mentioned, the providers that were involved in the actual event and allows closure and discussion regarding the case that just unfolded. That's in contrast to cold debriefing, which, like I was mentioning, has more objective data incorporated into it and leads to a more formal discussion and often tends to last a little bit longer. Okay. Our listening audience, Lauren, is composed not only of physicians, but nurses, respiratory therapists, medical students. Are all of these participants invited to the debriefing or is this just for physicians? Certainly, the more the merrier. So we try to incorporate as many participants that were involved in the resuscitation or the event as possible. So that may include techs, it may include nurses, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, physicians, even subspecialists that may have been involved in the care of the patient, medical students, you name it. We try to incorporate and involve everyone that was involved. Great. Okay. Let's talk about location. So obviously with a hot debriefing, it occurs in the ED. Is it better to do it where the doctors and nurses congregate? Is it best to do it in the resuscitation room or the patient room for a hot debriefing? I think it depends on the circumstances. If the resuscitation is still ongoing or if there's medical responsibilities that are still taking place, the resuscitation room may not be ideal. If the resuscitation has ended completely and all of the patient care responsibilities have been finalized, then that might be an opportunity and a place where people may congregate. Alternatively, you can do it in uh, the patient care areas where you're near your computer or potentially a family room if it needs to be more private. I think it just depends on what the circumstances are. Okay. And in cold debriefing, Lauren, 
Do you return to the scene of the resuscitation? Do you go back days or weeks later to the resuscitation room if, if it's open to have your debriefing there? Maybe to get everyone who is involved in the resuscitation, you may have to do it remotely, like a Zoom format. So what do you recommend for cold debriefing locations? Exactly. Cold debriefing tends to be in like meeting rooms or over Zoom. It's a little bit more formal in its approach. Hot debriefing tends to be more on the go. And so that's why it happens often near where the clinical care is being provided. Great. And many of these cases, Lauren, as we could well imagine, especially the resuscitations, uh, many will involve M&M conferences weeks or months later. And I know your institution, shop many institutions have M&M conferences. How does a cold debriefing differ or is the same as a morbidity and mortality report on a patient experience? That's a great question. So cold debriefing tends to identify any systems issues or anything relating to the patient care that may have interfered or potentially contributed to the care of the uh, patient. M&M looks at what the root cause analysis is of what actually happened in the case. So they are quite similar, but they have nuances that are a little bit different, I would say. Lauren, in the ER, especially nowadays, volumes are astronomical. We don't have time to even have to stop for a snack or a drink. So now you're asking for us to have debriefings on these critically ill children after the resuscitation or after the care has completed. Let's, uh, a simple question, how long should a debriefing last? That's a great question. So we try to limit the debriefings to 10 minutes or less. And for all the naysayers who say they don't have enough time, the way I phrase it is we have 10 more minutes to resuscitate the patient so we can take 10 minutes thereafter. Okay. In Philadelphia, Lauren, we have a phrase actually with the Philadelphia 76ers, trust the process. And uh, for those Sixer fans who are listening, the Sixers have not started this season well, but let's talk about the process. What types of questions, what are good questions, what are bad questions? And I know you have a mnemonic I think you published on Reflect. So tell us a little bit about the mnemonic Reflect and what questions should always uh, or maybe many times be asked during a debriefing? Sure. So there's many different frameworks that you might be able to use when engaging or facilitating a debriefing. So you may have heard in the literature about the plus delta method. So usually the way we employ that is to start by a one-line summary statement of the case. And then the plus delta is what went well and what could be improved going forward. So that's one way that you can organize the discussion and engage team members. What we found in the literature is there wasn't, when I was initially starting this work, a lot of literature out there about a framework, as you mentioned, on how to facilitate a debriefing. And for those that haven't done it, they may feel a little bit uncomfortable. So what we did in searching the literature was we created a mnemonic called REFLECT. And each letter stands for a salient point in a debriefing. And I'll walk you through it. Great. So the R stands for review the event. So that's just a one-line summary statement of the case so that all the participants in the debriefing are on the same page. Because potentially some of the providers may not have been involved in the resuscitation or event. The first E stands for encourage team participation. That's creating an environment without judgment to allow providers to openly discuss what they would like to say. The F stands for focus feedback. 
So instead of saying, you did a great job during that resuscitation, what I would encourage providers to say is, I noticed when this happened, you did that. That was great because X, Y, and Z. And that's a lot more constructive feedback. The L stands for listen to each other. And the second E stands for emphasize key points. So each participant potentially could have an opportunity to say their name, their role in the resuscitation or event if they were involved, and one thing they took from the experience, either the resuscitation itself or the discussion thereafter, the debriefing. The C stands for communicate clearly in a shared language. And finally, the T stands for talk about transforming the future. What can we do differently next time to potentially care for the patients in a different manner and identify any systems issues that may have come up in the care of the patient that could be improved going forward? So uh, a great mnemonic, and I think each of those points that you outlined sort of add to the whole thing of the debriefing. My question to you is, what happens if things went awry during the resuscitation? Is the debriefing a, a time to, to call people out? Uh, how do you, uh, again, as a facilitator, as a leader in the field of debriefing, how do you in a nice way, remembering obviously the emotional well-being of the healthcare practitioners, point out things that went wrong, I guess, in a positive way? Sure. So that can be very challenging. Um, so it's really critical in these discussions to make them non-judgmental, non-punitive, so that everyone feels comfortable. If there was an egregious error, you can say in a way that I noticed that when this happened, this happened. So for example, I noticed when the monitor went off, we thought it was this rhythm, but actually it was this. Can you tell me a little bit about what you were thinking when that happened? And this way, you're not placing blame or judgment on any particular provider, but inquiring and being very inquisitive about what was being thought during the resuscitation. So then you learn what the systems issue, and maybe there's a knowledge gap, or maybe it potentially was someone didn't see the monitor clearly, or potentially the monitor wasn't being portrayed from, you know, the patient's area to the larger group. And so the person standing in the back couldn't see. There's many different systems issues that could be at play. And so I think, again, it's really critical to stay neutral and non-judgmental so that people feel comfortable in participating in these discussions and that they continue to do them more regularly so that systems issues are identified and rectified. Awesome, Lauren. Let's talk about some of the participants. What if the participant feels he's being he or she is being picked on and they become defensive? Uh, either they counter you or they just become silent because they're they don't like the constructive criticism that is going on in the debriefing. How do you, as a facilitator or an expert in the field, uh, handle that type of participant in the debriefing? So I think there's two different things that we're highlighting. So the person that becomes um, defensive. In the discussion, I think you just need to acknowledge. I think you need to say, I notice that you're feeling upset or I notice that you're um, having some feelings. Would you like to share with the group about that? But what's really critical is that you don't allow these discussions to become one-sided. I would say what's really critical for that discussion is that the um, discussion that the debriefings don't become skewed in a way that it's, it's focusing on one provider in particular. So you want to keep them 
more broad, more generalized. And you can say to the group that I noticed that a lot of feelings or things are coming up in this discussion. These are really important. And we're going to table this for right now and save it for a later discussion or potentially for the cold debriefing thereafter. Okay. Now for the silent participant, it's really helpful if you engage people. Um, you can potentially, if you know their name, just say, you know, John, I noticed that you haven't had a chance to contribute to this discussion. Is there anything that you would like to add? If you don't know someone's name in particular, you could talk about their roles, potentially say, I noticed that none of the respiratory therapists have had a chance to speak. Do any of them want to say anything regarding the circumstances? So those are two ways that you can kind of engage people who are more quiet and not as uh you know, forthcoming with their discussions. Okay. How about the participant, okay, who is loquacious, who is talking a lot. And actually they were sort of in the peanut gallery during the resuscitation. We usually have a large group of people in resuscitations. They were not one of the primary players, but it seems like after the resuscitation, during the debriefing, they have a lot to say. What do you do with that type of participant, Lauren? Similarly, I would say I would acknowledge what they're saying and try to engage other participants who aren't contributing as much. You know, you can say, Sally, I noticed that you have contributed a lot. I'd like to hear a little bit more from Ron because I haven't heard from him as much and kind of transition the conversation a little bit. Okay. We've talked about not only in the definition, but in many of your words uh, this last half hour, Lauren, the goal of debriefing is to improve the performance of the team during the next resuscitation. Give us some specific examples in your training or in your lecturing What specific improvements have you seen that debriefing leads to? Yeah, so this is one of my favorite things to discuss. Um, A case that I love to highlight is one that I actually had myself. It was an 18-year-old who was floridly septic, you know, tachycardic, febrile, tachypnic, did not look well at all. And for reasons unbeknownst to us at the time, the patient did not trigger for sepsis. And we were all puzzled because you didn't need a medical background to know that the patient was very sick and septic. And so what we did was we did a debriefing with the team thereafter. And what we found was the BPA was triggering for less than 18-year-olds and above 18-year-olds, and they forgot to include 18 per se. And so that's since been rectified. And something as simple as that, we like to point out, can be fixed by these simple discussions. Another thing that has come up recently are the confusion in the epinephrine concentrations. So we actually have a standard concentration throughout the hospital, and it needs to be calculated for children. And so that has come up in a resuscitation recently. Um, Not that the patient got the wrong dose, but that the calculations can be confusing for nurses when things are happening very quickly. And so that was clarified. Also, we had an issue come up where the monitors weren't syncing with the blood pressure cuffs. And so those monitors have since been replaced. And one that has come up recently is we've recently renovated our pediatric emergency department and the announcements cannot be heard at times in the back of the ED. And so that obviously is problematic because you might not know a critical patient is coming in. And so we're working on those to kind of figure out how we can fix the announcement so that everyone in the EV has situational awareness and um, obviously knows when a critical patient is there and needs to be cared for. So, so what I'm hearing, Lauren, is the process 
the reflect process or whatever mnemonic you want to use, some others, is standardized. But it sounds like the performance outcomes are institution specific. In other words, each institution may have things that they'll pick up during the debriefing to help performance. And and you gave a, a few examples. Is that correct, though? I would say yes. I mean, usually the programs that I've been involved in are tailored to each hospital per se, and I've done it in multitude of different hospitals. So yes, the answer would be it kind of is specific to where you're working. But I would say in in order for a program to be successful, you need buy-in from local debriefing champions. So not just in your workplace environment, but I would almost advocate that hospital leadership needs to be involved and aware of what's happening and support your efforts so that it can be spread throughout the rest of the hospital. I think those are excellent points, Lauren. Obviously, you talked about the value and the utility of debriefing. It's only 10 minutes, like you said. I mean, you're not taking a half hour, 40 minutes. And as you mentioned, you could have resuscitated the patient for an extra 10 minutes. So it is worth those 10 minutes are very worthwhile. And I think most importantly, it improves patient outcomes, and emotional well-being of the participants in a resuscitation. Lauren, let me just close by, we talked about landmark articles, and obviously debriefing is in its infancy, but maybe in a few years, one of our colleagues will come on and say that one of the landmark studies are one of the uh, studies that you published on debriefing. So your thoughts about where debriefing is now and what the future is of debriefing. So I'm so excited that we're doing it more regularly. I mean, when I initially started this work, it was hard to convince people to gather even for 10 minutes, five minutes, um, because everyone has competing tasks and we all know how busy the ED can get. So now that they're happening more regularly and people are recognizing the value in it, I think there's a lot that can be said about the utility in these rich discussions. And What I would say is we really just need to focus on what is being documented in these discussions, identifying who will address issues in these discussions that arise, and close the loop with the providers and the participants on any actions that are taken from them. And similarly, as you mentioned, provide resources for staff members who encounter any psychological distress as a result of whatever comes up in these discussions. So as far as where we're headed, We often are doing these discussions regularly. What I would say is now it's a systems issue. So we're spreading it throughout the hospitals, not just in each individual clinical environment, but more so a collaborative effort. I know at Mount Sinai and at CHOP, we have um, an interdisciplinary um, collaborative that meets monthly to discuss debriefings that happen throughout the units. And I think the next level, the next step of what's going to happen from here is how we can collaborate between hospitals. So we have it disseminated throughout the different departments, but I think the more we can collaborate and learn from each other's shared experiences, the better. And so I think that's where we're headed next. That's the wave of the future, how we can coordinate and collaborate among hospitals in either similar geographic regions or potentially across the country and even internationally. That is awesome, Lauren. Well, you convinced me because obviously soon after your fellowship, when you took the job at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, you brought your debriefing talents to CHOP uh, and incorporated that, that there. And that's how I and our fellow colleagues learned. And uh, I think the future looks bright for debriefing. And I want to congratulate you on your prior publications and look forward, like I said, to 
uh, the future of how you're going to expand the role of debriefing and how it will continue to improve patient outcome and healthcare well-being. So thank you on behalf of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast for joining us today, Laura. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure.